Welcome to this episode of the Slalom Daily Dose. Today, we're speaking with Dr. John Hickson, and we're going to talk about epilepsy going digital. Dr. Hickson, welcome. We're so excited you're here and decided to spend your valuable time with us. Thanks so much for having me. Please feel free to call me John. All right, John. Let's start by understanding what's your role at the Epilepsy Foundation? Well, I'm a neurologist and an epilepsy specialist. My work with the Epilepsy Foundation is just one of many roles that I play in the field. My, my primary contribution to, to that effort involves serving as a physician representative on the development of their mobile diary, which has now been around for over a decade. And I'm sure we'll talk about it more throughout the conversation, really focus on developing a, a mobile system for allowing patients to better track their seizures, medication, dosing, and side effects. And I'm hoping to bring kind of the voice or the perspective of the physician to that development, as well as voice perspective of a patient and caregiver. That's fascinating. Physician now falling in love with the digital tools and bringing that perspective into the development of the digital tools. Please share with us how you got here. What does your professional journey look like? Sure. Well, I've been practicing now for 15 years, which is hard to believe. I came to the Bay Area and started my faculty position at UCSF, Mm -hmm. University of California, San Francisco. I trained on the East Coast. I was at Johns Hopkins for medical school and then went to the University of Pennsylvania for my residency training. And when I first started, I was largely in clinical practice. Again, I had done some specialty work in epilepsy, and so I joined the Epilepsy Center, was doing some clinical translational research. Mostly I was, you know, seeing patients with epilepsy. And we disproportionately see patients who have kind of the more severe forms of epilepsy that aren't responding to medications. Mm -hmm. Most patients, when they receive an epilepsy diagnosis, are seen in the community by neurologists. And the basic evaluation and pathway for most patients is relatively straightforward. And if they get put on a medication and it works for them, then they often never need to see, you know, a physician at a specialty care center. Mm -hmm. But we were seeing and I was seeing these patients who, again, were, were often having a little bit more trouble. Maybe the medications weren't working. And it just became very clear to me that there were better ways of getting the information that we needed to help patients make educated decisions. Mm-hmm. So information about when a patient is having seizures, whether they're experiencing side effects from a new medication, whether they're struggling to take their medication at the prescribed times. These are all things that whenever you see a patient over, say, a three to four month interval, it can be very difficult for them to accurately recount those behaviors. And so I thought there should be digital ways that we could do this. And being here in the Bay Area, you know, it's just kind you of got the, the technology bug. Yeah, exactly. You mm-hmm. you um, you almost soak it in because yeah. of the community. Mm-hmm. So that's what got me started. And this is really before, you know, digital health was even a term. <laughs> Um, I think that some of the nascent meetings were just getting started at that point in time. Mm-hmm. I guess the next step in my journey really involved my work at the VA. So I also see patients and do research at the San Francisco VA. And there was actually a new epilepsy center that was started there, which was essentially a partner with the university. And they needed some faculty members to help stand that up. And the VA was also a very interesting model for doing digital health research because it's the patients that are we see there 
again, are tend to be more rural. And so coming great distances to get their care here in San Francisco can be challenging. So getting data from them remotely was mm-hmm. also a, a real opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I took some of these ideas and started to practice there. And most of the research that I do now today is actually in the veteran population, uh, mm-hmm. looking at whether these types of technologies will help benefit them. That, that's amazing. Patients are, are lucky that you are thinking about these solutions to truly help them. You mentioned epilepsy. Would you please describe for our listeners this disease state? I'd be happy to. So, you know, I do feel like I serve almost as an educator for both patients and family members and, and maybe even the public about this particular health condition. It's actually a lot more common than most people realize. So 1% of uh, the population in the, in the United States and maybe even more worldwide are affected by an epilepsy diagnosis. It simply means that a person has a greater tendency to have a seizure than thought to be normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a highly variable condition. So, for instance, you could have some individuals who have had maybe three seizures in their lifetime, and they are diagnosed with epilepsy. And then you can have other people who may have seizures much more frequently, sometimes multiple times a day. And that entire bucket of, of uh, patients is all termed epilepsy. I think that that term does carry a tremendous stigma, un- mm-hmm. unfairly, frankly, affected our field pretty dramatically. So I have mm-hmm. patients who have carried an epilepsy diagnosis for decades, and mm-hmm. they still to this day see me and say, you know, I have a seizure disorder being treated for that, but I, I don't have epilepsy. Mm-hmm. So there's something about that phrase that I think really impacts people. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about that. Yeah, I think it would be good to elaborate on that and maybe share with us the patient journey. What does that sure. look like? You right. know, right. Um, to, to your point around the fact that when they are when they first hear the term, mm-hmm. it's, it's like a shock. Right? It is. Absolutely. Um, so, share with us what the journey looks like. Right, right. So depending on your perspective, I think a lot of people, when they think about epilepsy, they think of like a big convulsive seizure that happens in a movie. And I think that that is indeed quite terrifying for patients. It can be very disconcerting and there's a lot of confusion. You know, that particular seizure type is just one of many, but just receiving this diagnosis in general can be can be a very uh, disconcerting time. Normally, whenever a patient comes in, it's often in, say, an emergency setting, and then they may not see a neurologist instantly. They may see a neurologist several weeks down the line, and by that time, they've you know, have already done their online homework, and mm-hmm. maybe that made them feel better. Maybe it made them feel even more scared. Who knows? But they, they see a neurologist. We often will do some basic testing. Usually, it involves imaging of the brain and then getting an electrical study called an EEG test or an electroencephalogram. And then based on those results, we would counsel the patient about you know whether they truly had that diagnosis or not, and mm-hmm. then if they did, what the most appropriate treatment was. For the vast majority of our patients, the first-line treatment is a medication, and fortunately, in most cases, a medication is almost fully effective. So about 70% of patients with a new diagnosis will become free of these events, free Mm -hmm. of seizures on medications. Mm -hmm. And so then the long-term trajectory is essentially that a patient needs to be very vigilant about taking their medication at the appropriate dose, monitoring for side effects, and then tracking for any breakthrough seizures, Mm -hmm. as we call them. What does that time period look like for them to become free of seizure, typically? So it's highly variable. As I mentioned before, condition is the same, whether you're having seizures daily or whether Mm -hmm. you're having, you know, one every two or three years. Mm -hmm. So uh, judging the success of a drug really depends upon, you know, 
know, the frequency of the events that you were having before you started the treatment. Mm -hmm. So if you are having daily seizures, you may know within a month or two if the medication is right for you. If you are having less frequent events, then it may take a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. But most patients within a, you know, three to nine month period should, should know if they're having success. Mm -hmm. There is a percentage of people out there for whom drugs are not effective. And even though we have you know, 25 to 30 drugs that are FDA approved for the treatment of, of epilepsy, mm-hmm. it's pretty clear that if the first two or three drugs don't work for you, then it's less likely that any of them will. And that then leads to this cascade where the patients typically come to a center like ours, and we try to help them come up with combinations of medications or look at other therapeutic options. Mm-hmm. But that patient population specifically would benefit from the digital tools that we're talking about here because right. we make our treatment decisions you know, based on things like seizure counting, side effects, and then medication compliance. Mm-hmm. And so these little bits of data are critical for mm-hmm. us to make the appropriate decision with that patient and right. perhaps their caregiver or parent. And um, what they're reporting to you at the time when they see you, which could be like three months from when they first saw you, they might not remember all the details exactly. of, of what happened to them in exactly. this time period. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So that coming back to my journey for entering this space is exactly mm-hmm. Uh, that issue. So mm-hmm. it is true that, you know, unless a patient is having a lot of problems, we typically will see patients every three to four months. Mm-hmm. And just as if any of us were asked to recount a daily behavior for three months, it's very difficult to know it's imp- what happens on any given. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so getting these little bits of daily information uh, mm-hmm. that don't have to be exhaustive, mm-hmm. but are highly accurate, and then collating those in a way that could be reviewed mm-hmm. at uh, a visit mm-hmm. um, with a physician mm-hmm. to make a more educated decision, I think, is critical. That gets to the heart of what we're hoping these digital tools will enable. That's right. And then that's also highlighting some of the challenges that, that we're seeing today, right? You mentioned early on in the conversation that patients is diagnosed with this disease state, there is a sense of uh, shock and then there is stigma associated with this term as well. Help us understand some of these challenges a little bit more. Well, often this diagnosis is not something that people are used to and they have traditionally, you know, not had to think about, you know, health conditions on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Uh, There certainly is something unique Mm -hmm. about treatment of epilepsy that requires some daily vigilance. I think that the best example that I typically use with most patients is the treatment, comparing it to the treatment for, say, high, uh, high cholesterol. Mm-hmm. So if you're taking a lipid-lowering agent for cholesterol, it really doesn't matter if you take it at 8 a.m. or noon or 8 p.m., right? It's not going to – maybe some of my colleagues would disagree with that, but I, I don't think it really has a meaningful impact. Whereas when you're taking a medication for seizures, Mm -hmm. because of the fluctuations of the drug in your body, it's really vital that you take it at a very specific time each day. Sometimes it's once a day, sometimes it's twice a day, but it's very important. And so getting accustomed to that is often a very foreign concept for most patients. So Mm -hmm. this is a shock. And using these digital tools to inform that behavior 
while not intruding too much into their life, I mm-hmm. think, is where the real opportunity here is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, as I mentioned before, taking that data and aggregating it you know, over a three- or four-month span and then presenting it in a very digestible format mm-hmm. to a physician so that the physician can review it with the patient and the family mm-hmm. in a single visit mm-hmm. and again, make a, a truly educated decision about what's best for the patient, mm-hmm. I think is where the real opportunity right. lies. Right. So it's a condition is stigmatized itself. So that's one of the big challenges, right? So there are quality of life implications, right? How you interact with your friends and family, what you tell them, right? right? In terms of what's happening with you. And then you mentioned tracking the condition, tracking specific aspects of the condition, uh, whether you're having the seizure or not, if any side effects being experienced as a part of the treatment is extremely important, right? And Mm -hmm. and hence a challenge because currently there are no tools that will allow the patients to track these things appropriately, correct? Well, I think there are tools. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that we've been developing tools for a while, Mm -hmm. but I take your point that Mm -hmm. stigmatization of the condition impacts patients' ability to do exhaustive tracking. That's right. And I think that that sums up where we're headed, yes. right? So that that's exactly because that's, you thank you for for correcting that. Right. And so some of the lessons yeah. that we've learned mm-hmm. um, the hard way, frankly. Mm-hmm. But I think that this is applicable not just to epilepsy but any chronic health conditions. Is that people generally don't want to be forced or have to think about their health every day. You just yeah. want to live your life. With early versions of the of the diary, there was this, frankly, unrealistic expectation that patients were going to log in every day mm-hmm. and put in data points that required, I don't know, five or 10 minutes, Mm -hmm. which whenever you've just been recently diagnosed and already feel stigmatized, Mm -hmm. only reinforces that idea, right? Yeah. I don't want to see my disease every day and think about it every day while I'm logging it. Right. You're only making it almost worse. And if you, certainly it would be great to have that information. And if there's patient, there are patients out there who feel empowered to do that, they should do that. But I think that the early versions of patients were designed with that expectation. And now we're, we're moving more towards kind of low-touch brief data points, which may not be as exhaustive or comprehensive in what they're capturing, but are much more likely to get valuable data from a majority of patients, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And yeah. while reducing the, hopefully, reducing the stigma associated with that because the patients can take these devices and these diaries and can go live their lives. Mm-hmm. And data will still be collected mm-hmm. that they'll be able to come back to later, mm-hmm. uh, make better educated decisions. That's right. So, you know, we talk about these digital tools and we talk about patients and, and, and for them to use these tools. One of the things we know sometimes based on the demographic, the usage of digital tools could differ. Young adults might want to use these tools more because they're just born and raised in this era of digital versus older people. I'm wondering if you have perspective on the demographic and their usage of these digital tools. Absolutely. So I, I think, first of all, I'll come back to my one of my earlier points. You know, it's I can't stress this enough. It's a highly variable condition. And, and so that's very difficult to generalize <laughs> tool usage across that. However, however, that being said, you know, I do think that the, you know, the adolescent and, and young adult populations are, are going to be the, the quickest to adopt and gravitate towards these types of solutions. And I think we've, we've seen that in some of our research work. Okay. However, I would note 
note that that group can also be the most discriminating because you know they have the expectation of a, of an app that is immediately usable in a way that gives them very quick feedback. Instant gratification. Instant gratification. And and I have to say that health apps are not the same thing as gaming or entertainment apps. And I don't know that they really ever will be. Mm -hmm. I'd be happy to be wrong about that. But I will say that that group, sometimes when we do, say, focus groups or do some user testing, they're the ones who are the most critical. That's fine. We, we want critique. Another group that I think is worthy of mentioning is the younger population. So there are certainly infants and young children who have seizures. And in that population, it's really less the patient that's using the application or the device and more parents. And the parents are very invested because it's their child. And so they often are uh, extremely motivated to collect very accurate data. Mm-hmm. It's also important to note that because they aren't the ones experiencing the seizures, they often have actually better data. Part of having a seizure is that depending on the severity of the event, you may not recall that the event occurred. So it's not even recall bias. It's that you have no recall at all mm-hmm. um, because you know it, it affected your awareness. But parents can be very tuned to their children, obviously. So that's another population which we have to consider whenever we're developing an application. And then the other population is the other end of the spectrum. So the older individuals, which I think that we all have a a bias now that, you know, older individuals are less likely to gravitate toward technology. But I actually think that's a bit of an error, right? So, you know, if you look at even Facebook, this is totally anecdotal, but, you know, I've, I've definitely seen over 10 years of use that demographic there has changed. My mother's on Facebook. Mine too. Constantly. You know, mm-hmm. she like used to start using hashtags the other day and I was like, and she even did it correctly. I was like, yeah. wow, this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Adoption of technology across the board. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at some of our work with the VA population, we had a study that was published a couple of years ago. I mean, the the median age was 54, I think. I would push back a little bit on the notion that uh, technology can't be used across the across the entire demographic. Yeah, and I think at this point, we're at a phase where, yeah, it is having broad adoption across the board, across the entire demographic. That's awesome. We talked uh, about the digital solution that you mentioned earlier, you mentioned digital diaries, right? And that being kind of your focus in terms of the tool that you're building or the solution that you're building for your patient. Let's expand on that and talk a little bit about this diary that you're building for your patients and also help us understand what exactly are you tracking in mm-hmm. terms of metric in this diary? Well, I would I would just note that yeah, it is true that I'm working on you know one specific diary, but there are are many, and so sure. I would really speak for the field as a whole. Mm-hmm. As we've talked about so far, I'm specifically interested in, in epilepsy, but I do think that the concept can apply to many chronic conditions. You know, I would say that the digital element of this is just the umbrella term for the tool. What we really want is any type of approach that can capture accurate data in a more efficient manner that doesn't impact the daily quality of life of the patient. Mm -hmm. For us, specifically, the main thing I want to know are accurate seizure counts, because that's often how we judge the success or failure of a medication. And currently, you know, we actually don't have that information in 2019, which is sobering to think about. Mm -hmm. So if a patient comes to me and I haven't seen them in three months and they're on a medication and they say, I haven't had any seizures, probably going to continue the medication. And that could end up being a totally misguided decision. If in reality, the patient is having, you know, a seizure every night Mm -hmm. that 
they don't recall, and I have no way of knowing that it occurred. On the other hand, a patient could come and say, oh, I'm doing horribly, but it turns out that they're not taking their medications correctly, or they're having events that they are mistaking for seizures that are something else, in which case I would then change a medication that was working for their epilepsy to something that's else. scary, yeah. Oh, but yeah. that's how we practice medicine in epilepsy <laughs> for, you know, yeah. 100 years. Mm-hmm. And we're still doing it that way, frankly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, getting these types of data points is critically important. I would say side effects of medications is another thing that we should be capturing. More accurate medication dosing. So as I mentioned earlier, the timing of, a, of an epilepsy dose of medication is really important. Mm-hmm. And so simply doing pill counting. So normally how we determine if a person is compliant with medications is that we have them bring them their pill bottle. Mm-hmm. And if at the end of the month they're all gone, we assume that they took their pills perfectly. But that's not always the case. So a patient could be, say, taking their medications at, say, you know, 10 a.m. and then 3 p.m., when in reality they should be taking it at 8 a.m. and 8 p.m., mm-hmm. and that could be uh, having a dramatic consequence on their treatment. Mm-hmm. And there's really no way for me to know that, right? None. That's right, yeah. So that kind of information would also be very critical for us to get. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful to understand all the different type of data points, everything from understanding the count of the seizure to the side effect of the medication to the time point at which they took their medication and whether or not if they take, took their medication per the prescription. How is that data used today? Well, within the app, um, mm-hmm. I think that today most of these apps are still largely patient-facing. So it's really the patient using this information to track for themselves, which I think if you're a quantified selfer is certainly very helpful, but that's a minority of patients, to be Mm -hmm. frank. Currently, I think patients bring bring their phone with them and show it to me. Sometimes they can download a report, print it if they want to use that approach, or they can email it. But it's certainly not yet to a point where it's scaled. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a problem. I mean, I think that's what we're actively working on now to Mm -hmm. correct. To shift this. Right. Yeah. And but currently it's it's still largely, you know, for patients to to try to learn more about their condition on on their own and and track for themselves, which I think is still quite valuable. But I don't think it realizes the full potential of this approach. How do we realize the full potential of this approach? Well, that's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Slowly, Mm -hmm. much slower than than I think people realize. Mm -hmm. But I think we're getting there. Mm-hmm. So I would argue that you know there are multiple stakeholders in the in the ecosystem that have to be taken into consideration. So certainly mm-hmm. kind of focused on now is developing a user design that is more palatable to patients, not expecting that they exhaustively input information on a daily basis, mm-hmm. but that we can passively collect little bits of data mm-hmm. more regularly that accurately reflect what's happening to them at home. Mm-hmm. And then from the provider perspective, making it easier for them to prescribe applications, look at the data and consume it in a way that's efficient for them. And then there are other kind of policy and and organizational considerations that I think are important as well. You know, you mentioned the different stakeholders, right? An individual perspective, payer perspective, hospital system. Maybe elaborate on that a little bit. What is the role of these players in the ecosystem? I think that overall, this entire ecosystem has largely been what has hindered digital health in general, in my opinion, for the past 10 years. There's Mm -hmm. a few notable examples that have have been successful. But I think that historical inertia and the fact that many of these types of tools don't 
immediately plug into the existing infrastructure mm-hmm. is the real problem here. And that starts, yeah. it involves all of the stakeholders that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. So from the patient's perspective, they are very accustomed to getting a prescription, getting a formal recommendation from a physician that can come in the form of a pill. It can be a procedure, but these are often a patient's expectations. And so there's no real good mechanism for a patient to get a prescription about these types of tools. And so patients are often left kind of floundering, thinking, oh, my physician mentioned this. Do I need to go online and look it up? Mm -hmm. I don't have any guidance on how to use it. They just feel kind of aimless. From the physician's perspective, you know, we don't have a good way to prescribe these. If I want to prescribe a medication, I go to my EMR, put in the name of the medication. And even for a relatively complicated medication, I can prescribe it in a relatively short amount of time, a few seconds. Mm -hmm. And then it enters this machine that has been set up and the medication goes to, or the prescription goes to the pharmacy and then the pharmacy really kind of takes over. And I have- have the insurance pays for it. I have very little to do, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So that's not true for this. I don't Mm -hmm. have a good way to prescribe a mobile diary. I don't have a good way to prescribe a automated seizure wearable. I don't Mm -hmm. have a good way to prescribe a self-management educational app. Mm-hmm. So that's simple fact, independent of incentive, right? That's just give right. me a way to prescribe these things to patients in an mm-hmm. official capacity that just takes me a few seconds. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that that would be very meaningful. Mm-hmm. And then on the policy side, you know, again, these types of tools and interventions don't really fit into mm-hmm. the traditional reimbursement mechanism. Mm-hmm. And as I said earlier, there are a few groups and startup companies that have successfully navigated that, but I think that those are still largely the exception. Mm-hmm. And And so that really hinders, I think, more widespread adoption. Mm -hmm. So then you look at people like hospital systems who would be fundamental in terms of investing in, say, an e-prescribing platform for a digital tool, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. There has to be a major incentive shift that would almost force or incentivize that investment, which takes time. That's right. right. That's very helpful. Thank you for understanding different perspectives from from different stakeholders in the ecosystem. We've talked about the importance of passively monitoring these bits and pieces of data so that you as a physician can make really informed decision that can have a true impact on patients' lives and the quality of life that they lead should they are diagnosed with this disease. You already mentioned that you're working on a solution. I'm wondering if you were to pick a moonshot that you're working on that you would like to see come true what would your moonshot be? Share with us. Sure. Yeah. Well, hopefully my career will have this. Uh, <laughs> we hope so too. Fingers crossed. I, I mean, I, I think it's basically an extension of, of what we're talking about here. You know, again, we had the first version of the diaries, which really required a pretty laborious amount of patient input and engagement. Now I think that our diaries and you know some of the wearables that we have allow people to give us data that requires just a tiny bit of time, but is a lot more robust in terms Mm -hmm. of the quality. There are a number of epilepsy-specific wearables now which passively capture events that they can then record whether they're seizures or not. But even those, you know, you have to, there's a a certain degree of compliance there. You have to put on a wearable, you have to charge it, right? So I think the moonshot is that there would be an entirely passive system Mm -hmm. that would monitor these patients. Mm -hmm. And then at their routine follow-up visits, you would log in to a site and you would see all of the data mm-hmm. aggregated, organized, mm-hmm. presented in a visual format that was immediately interpretable. Mm-hmm. And I would review it with a patient. Maybe they could have reviewed it at home if they wanted to, mm-hmm. but it would all just be there. 
mm-hmm. and it would include all of their seizure events, maybe even the different seizure types, time they occurred, the length of time they lasted, all of their dosings with a date and a timestamp, side effect reporting, all done effectively with virtually no input. no input from the patient. Mm-hmm. I think that's the moonshot, right? Mm-hmm. You know, but it'll take time. I mean, I still remember one of my very first digital health meetings, probably in 2011, 2012. Some wearables were already being discussed back then. Uh-huh. And I remember I was already working on diaries then, too. And I was talking with someone who I won't name. And I said, well, in three years, I think wearables will be ready to go. And this individual said, oh, John, John, you're being far too pessimistic. And three years is going to be all about implantables. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, there's no way. So anyway, mm-hmm. that was, it's been eight years. And mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I would dare say we're not uh, quite at the implantable stage yet. Mm-hmm. But if you wanted me to talk about a moonshot, I think that, you know, that type of passive monitoring uh, would be the moonshot. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. And in the good thing is that you're actively playing a role in, in shaping that and in delivering on the moonshot too. So we're definitely rooting for you, John, and then for the patients that are going to benefit from, from this solution. So what is John like when he's not <laughs> treating patients and not building digital solutions? Well, my wife and I have two young daughters now, so I would be lying if I said that they didn't occupy most of my free time Mm -hmm. it's been a joy to raise them Mm -hmm. and so that's how we spend most of our time we spend a lot of time in golden gate park which is my favorite park on the planet so i'm happy to go there with them and introduce them to that my wife and i and our whole family in general are very outdoorsy people so we go camping hiking say when my wife and i are able to have some non-kid time we like to ski and scuba dive Mm -hmm. Truly so. leveraging uh, nature in, yeah. in all its forms. Right. So that that's wonderful. One of my favorite questions to ask our guests towards the end of our conversation is, what is the most exciting health technology that you <laughs> use today? <laughs> well, that's a loaded question. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> Too many technologies out there. <laughs> so I will say, truthfully, uh, that I'm not wearing any technologies currently. I have experimented with many diaries and, and many wearables, both on a personal level to learn more about my my own physiology and to, to help design these for patients. Mm-hmm. For me personally, I found that often I learn a lot at the beginning of a wearable use, and then I essentially realize that my body is capable of doing a lot of its own self-monitoring. So for instance, mm-hmm. you know, one of the early, some of the early Fitbit and other wearables, you know, I learned that I could roughly gauge how many steps I took depending on what type of behavior. So if mm-hmm. I w- drove to work a day, I would, you know, usually walk a certain amount of steps. And if I walked to work, I would, you know, walk a certain amount of steps. And I could pretty much, even without the wearable, predict, you know, what it was going to be within, you know, 100 or so steps. And so then the utility for that wearable kind of fell away for me, which I actually think is useful to know. I mean, a wearable isn't appropriate for every clinical situation. And so whenever we're talking about using wearables or other technologies in medicine, you have to be very considerate about your use case, right? So for Mm -hmm. instance, you know, the the seizure use case isn't going to work for everybody. And, you know, you could envision other use cases where they're very similar to what I just described, where mm-hmm. maybe you have an operation and you're going to use a wearable to monitor yourself as you recover from joint surgery. 
That's so right. there's not the expectation that you're going to use the wearable for an indeterminate amount of time. You're That's only right. going to use it for six weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't detract from the value of it at, at all. Mm-hmm. Right? Can I still get you to say what's your favorite <laughs> health technology? Come on. I, so I, I know, know that, that you've got one. I don't have a favorite health technology. <laughs> I think that I do whenever uh, our first child was born, my wife and I got I don't know if this counts as a health technology. Uh, we got a, a Peloton bike. I don't have any affiliation. That's not an advertisement. But we did get a Peloton <laughs> bike so that we could exercise in the home. And, you know, it has a very robust tracking system where you can race against yourself. Mm-hmm. And so frequently race myself, mm-hmm. if that counts. Does and that then count? What do, you, what do you look for in terms of tracking? <laughs> a wattage. I'm racing my wattage. How mm-hmm. much power can I put out? <laughs> gotcha. Well, with that, I think that's a good way to close this conversation. Although I would like to continue this conversation, which is very interesting. There are so many aspects of solving this problem. But I think primarily the main message for our listeners here is that Ultimately, it's about passively monitoring data and metrics in the body, depending on the condition you know that one is facing. But the, the key word is passively monitoring, so that how can we reduce the burden of managing our disease, right? And then make it almost like we are not thinking about it on a daily basis. So with that said, as people who are thinking about developing these solutions, how can we develop passively monitoring solutions that can hopefully benefit the patients in managing their quality of life over a long-term and a better quality of life in general. So with that, we come to the closure. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Slalom Daily Dose. We hope you enjoyed it and got some bits and pieces for the work that you're doing. We are currently on major streaming platforms like Apple, Google, Spotify, and Stitcher. So please download it if you haven't already on your favorite podcast app. Listen to it, leave us a comment, share some love on social media. And you can use any social media of your choice, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. Definitely give us some likes. Thank you. Once again, I'm Perti Kanodia, your host of the Slalom Daily Dose. Stay tuned for the next episode. 